When this kind of fire starts, it's very hard to put out. The tender boughs of innocent burn first, and the wind rises, and then all goodness is in jeopardy. I'm Eddie Webb. And I'm Chris Spivey. And today we talk about Twin Peaks, Firewalk With Me, here on Genreless. Uh, welcome to uh, John West. We're continuing our walk through Twin Peaks, and Chris is giggling because of the note I have on the sheet, which is the remember in episode one we mentioned the content warnings for Twin Peaks. Just like quadruple that because uh, uh, this was not a made for TV movie. This was a made for the cinema movie, and David Lynch lost his goddamn mind. So, <laughs> well, this is more reminiscent. If people have seen Blue Velvet, it is yeah. a mix of taking Twin Peaks and Blue Velvet and mashing them into one movie. Right. I mean, this was definitely Lynch when he was at his peak of like trying to uh, push boundaries in cinema. Um, and uh, there are lots of things that are interesting because why he does that and how that affects this film and Twin Peaks as a media. I mean, so I, I'm definitely saying there's, I think, good reasons behind it, but you got to know going in, it, it's lots of underage sex, lots of drugs, their sexual assaults, the whole nine yards. Um, and the worst part is, is that if you want to follow through Twin Peaks at the end, you can't really skip it. You should probably at least read the, uh, uh, the plot summary of it because it does not only bleed into the return, but also it does look backwards into some of the stuff in the show itself. So it, it, it's, it's an important part of the process, but, Whew, you're ready for it. <laughs> um, so I guess this is this will be the part where I'll put this. There was one more movie I suggested that we watched to round out our entire <laughs> <clears throat> Lynch retrospective, and Eddie was like, "I could take no more Lynch." And no. I was like, "Come on, just one one more. This one won't be nearly as bad." And if anyone knows the movie I'm about to talk about. It's not bad, but it is definitely surreal and graphic like this. Mulholland Drive. So Mulholland Drive was going to be one of the, is a take of a spinoff idea that they had for Twin Peaks, which would have followed Cheryl Finn's character going to Hollywood and trying to become an actress. And that would have been her journey, mm -hmm. but that didn't really happen. So it sort of transformed into this movie, Mulholland Drive. And that would be, I'll save the rest of it for a different podcast, but if you haven't seen it, you should definitely go see it. It is a movie that made Naomi Watts' career, and it's also why Naomi Watts is going to show up in The Return, because she's worked okay. much. Okay. Um, I, I, I will say that um, usually when Chris says these things, he, he, he's, take, he's talking to shit, but in this case... He's actually accurate. I, I, I do believe that David Lynch is a, a uh, creator best savored rather than binged. And we've been binging a lot of David Lynch. So uh, uh, I, I feel like in some ways, this, this, this the fast wine format we do with genreless is doing a slight disservice to David Lynch, but also it's a lot of Lynch all at once. It's a fire hose of Lynch. Well, I'm not sure if, even I could take us doing a full Lynch retrospective weekly, going through like each individual episode, each movie. Because Lynch is a 
a genius and had some masterpieces of work, but he also had several dumpster fires, which is expected for any creative because not everything sure. you make is going to be this amazing thing. You're going to have highs and lows, but those lows are really low. And some of them are even off taste that you more off taste and love the off taste stuff that worked. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's, that's the thing. Like, uh, uh, David Lynch, most creators were like, uh, when the, when he, when he misses, he misses badly. When he hits, he hits really well. There's really no such thing as a mediocre David Lynch product. Uh, it, it's either amazing or terrible or both somehow occasionally he manages to do both. Uh, I can make a strong case for the Dune movie being both, but, uh, I he, think the he, Dune movie is a masterpiece, by the way. I, I think the Dune movie would have been better if it had been the comic that they ripped off, but <laughs> we can go into that at some point <laughs> in the future. <laughs> so now we have to do the, the Dune podcast, which maybe when the next uh, Dune movie comes out, we can do a little. Yeah, maybe. Um, um, because uh, um, uh, the, the French comic that it was originally going to be based off of is a whole lot. Uh, but uh, anyway. Um, I didn't know that, but that makes sense, though, because some of the funding that Lynch frequently gets are from French backers and from understanding French is uh, Lynch is loved in France. I think they even helped fund uh, fund some of this movie and they definitely funded the um, Mulholland Drive movie because it's a failed TV series that became a movie. Right. Um, uh, uh, oh, God, of course, I'm blanking on the name right now. Um, uh, but. Um, it was a French sci-fi comic. Uh, the creators of it were actually approached to do their take on Dune. Uh, that got scrapped and handed over to Lynch. And Lynch used a lot of that material as a basis for his version of the movie because uh, he had a respect for it. Um, oh, God. Dean Cal. That's it. Uh, Leiden Cal in French, but Dean Cal. Um, that's the comic that uh, was released because that, the, that comic was derived from the original dune treatment that they got scrapped so there's a whole kind of ouroboros of that going on uh but anyway we'll, we'll cover that more if we ever do dune because it is a fascinating moment and there's a whole documentary about that failed dune treatment in whole nine yards but we're not here to talk about dune we're here to talk about firewalk with me are you sure i could have sworn we renamed our entire podcast like this is the worm and it's all <laughs> about sandworms and being on Arrakis, which is, oh, I, I guess I will save that for the, the spoiler part of the episode. I mean, we could, I mean, that if we do that, then we have to talk about the Dune 2 video game, which is an underappreciated masterpiece of video game design. And we talk about the Dune role-playing game, both the last I, unicorn version and the new one that came out. I'm, I'm happy to talk about the new Dune role-playing <laughs> game as one of the award-winning writers from it. Was that a self-plug? <laughs> That's what you call oh, a self-plug. Wow, we're getting good at this. And we're not getting good at this. Well, someone said that we need to plug ourselves more, so I, I feel obligated for that that solo fan to do that bit of plugging. Yeah, our, our listener has decided that they want to hear more more advertising from us. So there you go. <laughs> did did folks know that Eddie is an amazing writer that created this game called Pugmire? <laughs> I did. So that's not fail to pitch the Kickstarter during our podcast. <laughs> so that's not a self plug. That's me plugging you. So maybe that that's better. So we'll like appease some other people too. All right. There we uh, go. There we go. The the plugging corner. No, I don't want to call it that. No, no. Um, moving on. Moving on. <laughs> uh, 
I, I, I do, I mean, I know I've emphasized this a little bit, but I think it's really important. Uh, this is an uncomfortable movie. It's intentionally uncomfortable, I feel. Uh, but um, I had talked in the first episode about how First Season of Swim Peaks was very much Lynch and Frost's take on a soap opera. And then I talked about how in season two, it kind of evolved into becoming more of a procedural mystery show and to its detriment, I felt. But still, it evolved. This is much more structured like a horror film. And so if you go into it, I didn't go into it this way, but if I, if I could go back and tell myself, go into it thinking it gets a horror film, I think it becomes a little more understandable and palatable. But it's still definitely more Lynch now. Frost, I don't believe, is very much involved in this. Um, but they're, they're, again, not quite parody, not quite deconstruction of a genre, but this time they're taking all the stuff and just now doing it with, with horror. I don't think Frost actually had near anything to do with this. And that's why they brought on, I want to say it was Ingalls to help try to provide some sort of coherent narrative for Lynch. <laughs> okay. Which they pulled some of the stuff from the book, but even the stuff they pulled isn't quite right. And I thought about warning you beforehand that this is, it says Twin Peaks, but this is not a Twin Peaks movie. But the objective though, was for us to view these in, in a sense as, as if we were first watching them when they came out. Yeah, And so that means we would need to view them as we were watching them in like in 1991. And this came out in 92 or 93, whenever. And this mm -hmm. is what we would have gotten after seeing that amazing cliffhanger of Bob possessing Coop. Yeah. And then we go, yes, let's go watch Twin Peaks Fire Walk with what the fuck did David Lynch give me? And, and, and let's, let's, I mean, it, the context is important here because this is 90, 92. You're right. Uh, uh, so the idea of a prequel was not really in the pop culture consciousness. That didn't really happen until the Star Wars prequels, where, where um, Lucas, whatever you think of Star Wars prequels, I'm sure at some point we'll talk about them, but um, they did normalize the idea that you can go before the start of a property and tell stories there, and, and that could be compelling. With a this, cash grab. Whatever. Uh, this was an environment where people are not used to that. Uh, and on top, uh, according to anecdotes, although this has been uh, contested, apparently it was booed when it was screened at uh, uh, one of the Cannes Film Festival, I believe it was. Um, people did not like this. And I remember when I was debating many years ago watching this, I had friends who were Twin Peaks fans who basically said season one's great, season two is mediocre, don't watch Firewalk with me. I could understand why they said that. And, and and I'm actually glad you didn't warn me because I was certainly watching this going a lot of what the fuck. Uh, but I also watched this a little bit of foreknowledge because I do know that the return does require Firewalk with me to make sense of it. And I use sense in a very loose term here. Uh, <laughs> but Firewalk with me is an important part of the the, the, the continuity. And the whole time I was watching, it's like, could people skip this film if they had to? And uh, you can't, even for reasons at 1992 purposes, you can't quite. Uh, so it's like all French things, it's hard to pin down. Uh, so maybe it's better if we kind of just dive into it unless you have some initial prefacing thoughts. Just that there's also a version I know on YouTube somewhere and, and it's on the Blu-rays now that has it, but they cut out, I want to say it was an hour 
an hour, 90 minutes worth of additional scenes that could be put back into the film. The YouTube mm-hmm. version has it back in the film, and I think the Blu-ray, Blu-ray has, my Blu-ray has them separately. But I didn't have time to watch it that you could have watched. Oh, is that the a, Blu-rose cut? Yeah, I think so. That's like a three, three and a half hour version. Yeah, I heard about that. I didn't have time to watch it because, you know real life but i was i wanted to originally watch it to see how that would parallel the experience but i didn't want you to have to watch these two movies twice back to back with an extra amount of time i would i would that would i would have rage quit at that point i think um yeah i mean although i am uh increasingly a fan of of fan cuts and i think at some point it might be fun to actually try to find some some fan edits of things and, and talk about them because i think the act of Third party editing of content leads to some interesting examinations of the original content. Uh, but two hours is plenty for this movie. <laughs> I, I want to go back and do the fan cut of B5 that you found, and we do yeah. that as its own entire series. That Let's stay on the road yeah. somewhere. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so I'm going to, uh, unlike our past movie podcasts, uh, this one does actually kind of break into three chunks, although it's really kind of two bookends and then the core of the movie. Um, so I'm going to do each chunk. In order, so I'll talk about the first chunk, then we'll analyze it, and then second chunk, and third chunk, because uh, because it, it is pretty neatly divided in those three pieces. Uh, so the first half hour is kind of uh, uh, one story, uh, which is in 1988. In there's a small town called Deer Meadow, Washington, and uh, Teresa Banks' body floats down a river wrapped in plastic, which sounds very familiar. Uh, the uh, bureau chief, uh, Gordon Cole, sends agents Chester Desmond and Sam Stanley to investigate. Uh, while examining Teresa's body, uh, the agents notice there's a ring missing from her finger. And this ring is super important, way more than it should be. Uh, uh, they find that there's a small piece of paper with letter T inserted under the fingernail. A local waitress later tells them that Teresa's arm went numb before she died because Teresa, uh, Teresa used to work at the diner when she came into town. At Teresa's trailer, Desmond notices a photo of her wearing that strange ring. Uh, at dusk, Desmond finds the ring in a mound under the trailer in a mound that looks very similar to the mounds where the uh, half-heart necklace was we saw in the series. Uh, he reaches out to take it, and that's the last we see. Uh, then we cut to FBI headquarters in Philadelphia, where Dale Cooper tells Cole of his foreboding dream. Uh, and I mentioned their long-lost colleague, uh, Agent Philip Jeffries, who actually materializes and starts to rant about a meeting he witnessed involving mysterious spirits. A vision of these spirits appears briefly before Jeffries vanishes. Uh, Sitting nearby, Agent Albert Rosenfeld reports that Jeffries was never there, and Desmond has disappeared. So I search for Desmond. uh, Cooper sent to Deer Meadow, but he learns nothing. So we need to stop there. And... I, We're not I, here to talk about Judy. <laughs> here to talk about Judy. Uh, I glossed over this because I wanted to kind of talk about it in length, and you can't really talk about it in the summary. Philip Jeffries is played by someone very, very important, Chris. You tell the audience who Philip Jeffries is played by. The one, the only, the gone well before their time, David Bowie. David fucking Bowie shows up in this film, rants incoherently, and then fucks off. (laughs) With what some people would call a southern accent. (laughs) Because British people can't be in the FBI. And he's like, 
He's, he's dressed like David Bowie. He's not even dressed like in a suit. And then I go, oh, this is FBI agent Silk Jeffries. Like, no, it's very clearly David Bowie. <laughs> even when I saw it the first time and I didn't know it was going to happen, I loved it. And there's a lot I have to say about this movie, but I still love every scene that David Bowie's in. <laughs> Which and, is the one scene he's in. <laughs> yeah. And unfortunately, <laughs> Bowie passed before they could put out the return. Otherwise, Lynch would have had Bowie in the return. Oh, that would and be great. And they replaced Bowie. They replaced Bowie, but Philip Jeffries is still in the return. Okay. Uh, well, I mean, it's Twin Peaks. That kind of stuff can happen. Uh, there is a recast in here. We'll talk about it in a bit. Um, so it's not the first time it happens either. Uh, but I mean, so this is a lot of this is the stuff that happened before the small references we got in episode one. Uh, so like there's another letter under the fingernail. Um, a Cooper mentions in passing a Teresa Banks's murder. So we're now just seeing all the stuff that, that Cooper is alluding to in that very first episode, the idea that this is a serial killer of some kind. Uh, and Okay, so I feel like I need to talk about Gordon Cole. Uh, because Gordon Cole. All right. Gordon Cole has hearing loss. Let's start there. He has some antiquated hearing aids, uh, even by 92 standards. Uh, and on the one hand, the way he reacts and the way he handles his hearing loss is sadly typical of many older men. Uh, who are in denial of their hearing loss and try to make sure other people speak up around them and tend to blame others for their lack of understanding. But holy shit, I am so over the gag of guys constantly screaming who has hearing loss and also doesn't understand anybody around him and makes humorous misunderstandings of everything is said to him. And that's that's Gordon Cole. That's, that's, that's his character. And I... Spoiler, I'm in the return. It doesn't get much better. <laughs> He's still doing that. Uh, but uh, I'm getting that out of my system to to bring up a larger point, which is what's interesting about the start of this movie is we have shifted the needle where all through Twin Peaks, it was kind of understanding that Cooper was a bit weird. And the other FBI agents were a little idiosyncratic, but were plausible. So you kind of, I mean, okay, Cooper's the strange FBI agent who gets these strange cases. With this now, no, all of the FBI are weird. Something has gone horribly wrong with the FBI in the late 80s. Uh, and this is before the X-Files. That's another piece of context that, that's helpful. So... Weird things happening to the FBI were not a cultural thing at this point. Just Lynch was like, no, everyone in the FBI is just strange, and we're just going to run with that, apparently. I I can't remember. I think the X-Files started around this time, right? Or did it start a few years later? Because David like Duchovny like does show up in season two of Twin Peaks. We just skipped those episodes. Oh, he did? Okay. Um, then let me double he check. He shows up uh, no, as... X-Files started in 93. Okay. So it's just a weird coincidence. <clears throat> or maybe they were filming the X-Files at the same time. Yeah. Because we also... 
I think we skip the episodes. It'll also have Duchovny in it for the returned. That okay. goes back to how we do our, our, how we do the show. We can't hit all the different guest appearances and everything else. And, but Duchovny was there. Uh, I think for second edition, well, for the second season, he was in maybe two episodes or three. And was he an FBI agent? Uh, no, he was a DEA agent. Ah. And by for the return, becomes an FBI agent. Becomes actually Gordon's boss. Yeah, Gordon's boss in the uh, return, if I remember right. Well, I mean, at that point, it makes sense because, like, okay, <clears throat> everyone knows who he is now. Um, yeah. Uh, it, I, I, my guess is that it was probably just a weird case of serendipitous casting or uh, uh, Mark Frost. I'm assuming Mark Frost more than David Lynch probably just knew a guy who knew a guy, knew, maybe, maybe was friends with Chris Carter and said, this would be funny, let's do this kind of thing. But I also think the company at that point in time was doing more, the the, the Red Shoe Diaries to right. a company period of his life. Yes. So he probably also just looking for any kind of work he could get and yeah. more mainstream quote unquote stuff. Um, but yeah, so like this is, on the one hand, this sets up a lot of meta plot and fills in some stuff from the series. So this is pivotal for both filling in some gaps from the previous two seasons and also stuff that's going to play off in, in the return. Uh, on the other hand, almost nothing happens. Uh, which is kind of peak Lynch, right? Where it's like, there's a whole bunch of stuff, but actually, what actually progressed in the plot? Very little. Uh, like the fact that there's a whole 15, 20 minute scene where Cooper's like, I'm going to go off to look at this, this guy's disappearance. It goes off the disappearance and then just fails. Just, just nothing. And then Cooper effectively gets shrugs and goes, okay, I'm done. <laughs> we cut to another part of the movie. <laughs> so part of the problems, and I, I use the word part, is that if, from what I've heard and what happened is the series was canceled around April. They wrote the script, I want to say in May or June with um, Kyle McLaughlin as Cooper coming in, but Kyle didn't want to do it and said, no, I'm not going to do it because he didn't want to be typecast. So they rewrote it to then bring in, <clears throat> um, wow, I forgot his name, the singer who plays Desmond. And after that, about a month later, Kyle says, you know what? I'll give you a week. And so they had to rewrite some additional parts to include Coop. But that's also why the script itself, as we're watching it, starts to contradict the series completely. Because in the series, it's Cooper who is investigating Teresa Banks like the first time. There is no Desmond or anything else. And now they've added right. Desmond and Cooper's investigating Desmond and then into Teresa. So it's constant little shifts and changes that break Twin Peaks. Right. I mean... Again, I, I haven't watched it closely, so there's probably details that do contradict it. But like the, what bits I've seen, the way Cooper phrases it, you could argue that he inherited the case. And so therefore, yes, he was investigating it. Um, but you're right. We don't actually see him investigating Teresa Banks at all. He basically just gets Desmond's notes, looks for Desmond, fails. And then as far as we know, I mean, the the, the, the book, other book end of this is then his, his migration into the Twin Peaks story um but so we actually don't see investigating the the bank stuff at all what this movie tells us he's basically just reading off another agent's notes it's not the, incompatible but it is pretty rough it starts really stretching it like it is it's yeah. already stretched thin and now it go even thinner another thing that bothers me is that this also then breaks the uniqueness of twin peaks touching back on how you were saying the fbi agents are yeah quirky 
Twin Peaks originally had a very, there was quirkiness and mystery and supernatural in Twin Peaks. But when you got outside of Twin Peaks, everything was pretty much normal. So that sort of detracts from that. And even I think in our podcast, I mentioned that Cooper has been trying to learn these different techniques, like his rock throwing and other things. But he was never inherently supernatural himself until he goes to Twin Peaks. And now we have Cooper having prophetic visions about things that happens in Twin Peaks. Right. And it honestly feels like uh, it was the sense of, okay, I want to write this movie that tells, that fills in the gaps of all the stuff that we were alluded to in the show. But people now expect a certain amount of weird characters because it's a Twin Peaks franchise. And so we add these in and I don't want to say it doesn't serve the story because that implies there's a story to serve. And I don't know if I want to give that much credit. Um, but I mean, it, it's, I agree with you. I, I feel like one of the things that was interesting about particular season one is that there's this tiny little town that doesn't exist. And, the fact that everything, all these things would happen seems to be confined to Twin Peaks, which again, we're talking about the soap opera model. The rest of the world doesn't exist except for the very tiny amount of space that the soap opera characters live in. So it's very much part of that trope. When we're now progressing into different genres, the rules change, but it's still bringing along the continuity that the original set of tropes established. And we're starting to see where those jar up against each other in, in, less interesting ways uh, um, because now it's just this entire world is not our world. And I think that was one of the things that made Twin Peaks cool is because it, if you squinted, maybe this town does exist in our world. Uh, again, like the fact that they have a fictional TV show that nobody else can watch. When you start to think about it, it's kind of interesting. It's like, do they have their own television? Does, does Twin Peaks make its own TV? You know, there's all these little interesting ramifications of it. Uh, they don't really talk about the outside world, but now, uh, Cooper is was the outside world coming in and then being absorbed by this town's weirdness. But now you're right. It, retroactively, nope. Deer Meadow's also just as weird. Yeah. So for me, that was... It didn't sit well. And also, it didn't sit well with me when I first watched it. And to, I guess, to, to spoil it, this is the second time I've ever watched this movie. Okay. I love Twin Peaks, and I've watched Twin Peaks a couple times. I've watched the series a couple times, but I have not rewatched this movie. And I'm curious, do you regret watching it again? I, I these are the things I do for the podcast. Well, well. So that take that answer for what you will. <laughs> I think it's a pretty clear answer. But uh, all right, uh, anything else about this first part? Besides, holy shit, David Billy. So this touches back, I guess, on the importance of music. Even if you're listening to the music, the music is slowed down and is also creepier than what the Twin Peaks music is for the theme yeah. songs and everything else. And it reinforces the importance and sets the tone of the show that we're watching. But the music is still so integral, even in this. I would love to buy this soundtrack i would have i would let david lynch not write my life story but i would let david lynch create the soundtrack of my life <laughs> yes that's that's a very important distinction uh that, that's it oh, although i okay. uh, sorry there's one more thing oh yeah uh how could we not mention this lil lil and that red wig 
Oh and yeah, the dress and the walking in place, the blue rose. We got to touch on the blue rose. What is the blue rose? Right, right. I, I did skip over that. So, um, uh, at one point in time, um, uh, Desmond's and Stanley are approached by Lil, who is is wearing a dress and wears a blue rose on her chest on her, on her dress and is making all these weird gestures. And Desmond explains this is all kind of a secret code to communicate to him about information about the case that's coming up. Uh, and the important piece to pull away from this is that he calls this a blue rose case, which we don't really understand significant sub, but it's implied that this is a kind of FBI classification for weird shit cases. This is their, basically their proto X files, you know, kind of that's what a blue rose case is. And it is, I'm glad you brought it up because it is a piece of the TV show in the sense of that, it's goofy. It's it's silly, and that kind of goofy weirdness is very much the TV show, because the idea that this is a secret language communicated in the most obviously bizarre way <laughs> is perfect. Not only send up of of the whole concept, but also send up of the FBI's kind of weird obsession with pretending they're spies, which is a very much a cultural thing. And so it's almost like at a get smart level of gag. I'd kill uh, for but, but you're right. I mean, the blue rose thing does become more relevant again in the return. Yeah. And it is briefly touched on, not the fact it's a blue rose case, but like the blue aspect of it is mentioned a little bit more in second season and it deals with major Briggs. And so it's more of that oh, okay. sort of alien connection. Yeah. No, that's, it, I, it, I, we just had to talk about Lil and Blue Rose. No, that's fine. Um, but it's, it, it's interesting you bring it up because now I may, probably not anytime soon, but I may go back and watch season two with the lens of season two as a kind of proto X-Files show because the more we talk about it, the more I'm seeing bits and pieces. And again, it's, it, it's more of a zeitgeist thing because I just think aliens and the government and the cover-up were, were something that had been building since the 60s. It hit its peak tipping point around the early 90s, so I think it was just something that different creators tapping into culturally rather than any kind of direct connection. Uh, but Okay, so um, we get a caption of one year later, and we now move to Twin Peaks, uh, where high school homecoming queen Laura Palmer uses cocaine and cheats on her boyfriend Bobby Briggs with biker James Hurley. None of this is surprising to us. Uh, she discovers that pages are missing from her secret diary and gives the rest of it to her friend Harold Smith for safekeeping. Mrs. Chalfant and her godson later appear to Laura. They present a small framed picture for her wall and warn her that the man behind the mask is in her bedroom. Laura runs home and sees Bob behind her dresser. She rushes outside in terror and sees her father, Leland, emerge from the house, kind of implying that her father is Bob or Bob is her father or whatever. Uh, that evening, Leland accuses Accusingly questions Laura about her uh, romances and then screams at her about washing her hands. Uh, he then comes to her bedroom and offers a tearful apology. She hangs the picture on her wall and dreams about entering the lodge. And so we see the you know the red room, you know the red curtains, the, the all that. Uh, she sees Cooper and and the man from another place who identifies himself as the arm and offers Teresa's ring to Laura. Cooper tells her not to take it. Laura sees Annie Blackburn next to her in bed, covered in blood. Annie tells Laura to write in her diary that the good Dale's in the lodge and cannot leave, and then disappears. Laura sees the ring in her hand, but she wakes up. It's gone. 
put a pin in that because I want to come back to them. Uh, that night, Laura goes to the roadhouse, which is a bar where she works as a prostitute, but Donna follows her. From there, Laura, Donna, and Jacques Renault, along with two of their clients, relocate to another bar just over the border from Canada. Uh, they start to drink and make out, uh, but when Laura sees that Donna is topless and drugged, uh, she actually drag Laura drags Donna off and begs her not to become like her. Next morning, Philip Girard, the one-armed man possessed by the merit spirit Mike, approaches Leland and Laura. He shows Teresa's ring to Laura while accosting Leland about canned corn. Leland, uh, this is this is while they were uh, driving cars. So he pulls over. He's clear terrified. And as he's doing that, he remembers his affair with Teresa. He had asked Teresa to set up a foursome with her friends, but then when she did so, she noticed Laura and he fled. Teresa realized who he was and tried to blackmail him, so Leland murdered her. When Leland and Mike, uh, or, or uh, um, the one our man yell, Laura becomes disturbed and screams the top at them to stop. Mike quickly drives away. That night in the forest, Bobby and Laura wait for Jacques' drug contact. They're approached by Deputy Cliff, who produces a package of white powder. He fumbles to draw a gun, but Bobby shoots first, killing Cliff. Uh... Then Laura, the next night, gets high on cocaine. Uh, Bob comes through Laura's window. She asks, who are you, and sees that Bob was her father. Laura goes to school the next day in distress, probably still high. Um, Bobby breaks up with her when she realizes that she's basically using him for access to drugs. Laura becomes increasingly erratic and disturbed. Uh, so she sneaks out with James into the woods. She uh, and breaks up with him. Jumps off his motorcycle and runs to the cabin in the woods where Jacques, Leo Johnson, and Renette Polanski are waiting. The four take cocaine and have sex. Leland shows up and beats Jacques unconscious while Leo flees. Leland takes Laura and Renette to an abandoned train car. Laura asks him if he's going to kill her. Bob tells her that he wants to be her. Bob pummels Renette unconscious. Mike, having tracked Leland there, rescues Renette and tosses Teresa's ring into the train. Laura picks it up and wears it. Enraged, Bob kills Laura and sends her body wrapped in plastic floating down the river. He then passes into the Red Room, encountering Mike and the man from another place. Together, they demand Garmin Bosia, which is translated on screen as pain and sorrow, from Bob. They demand it from Bob as a separated Leland floats beside unaware. So we're going to stop there. Um, and this is basically filling in all the stuff that Cooper's investigation uncovered over the course of two seasons. We're, we're seeing it all play out. And Carmen Bozia. Carmen Bozia. So, um, yes, uh, Laura, Laura's father has sex with her. Kind of on screen. Uh, so, just that, gotta, that, that's there, that's a thing that exists. It's it. This movie does not shy away from it in any way, shape, or form. Uh, this is where I, I this section is where I get a lot of my conceit that this is really a horror film because this is we're basically watching Laura descend into insanity, and it's uncomfortable to watch. That is very obviously and clearly the point. What's interesting. Okay, all of this is interesting, but one of the things that stuck out was to be interesting is that sometimes when a, a prequel comes out, there's arguments about um, watching big chronological order versus release order and blah, 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 blah. 
Uh, you can't do that with the movie initially for obvious reasons because it spoils the entire case. So you can't watch this before the case because there's a who killed Laura Palmer. I already know the answer to that. I'm just waiting two and a half seasons to get to it. Um, but another thing is that Annie, the stuff with Annie happens from our perspective long after Laura's dead. So it's weirdly kind of asynchronous in time where it actually progresses one thread from the TV show buried in all of this prequel stuff. The anti-supply, it does actually move ahead slightly. But it goes back to time being kind of secular and stuck in, in on itself. You can go forward in time or backwards in time within the Twin Peaks universe. And it's yeah. touched on briefly before, and this is like another touching on that button again. This one of the things that I find interesting about Twin Peaks, and some of this is coincidence, some of this is happenstance, some of this is intense, uh, but in retrospect, it all works. Is that um, time acts weirdly, like you said, not in a Doctor Who timey wimey sense, but rather time doesn't just work differently. We can break it in very specific ways because this is a fictional medium, but also the time it takes for us to watch it and consume it and the time it's actually passing never quite connect, but also we as the consumers get a different perspective of time than the people who are living through it. And that's interesting. Like on the one hand, um, you had said before that we watched, we, the, the, the pop culture, we, watch Twin Peaks unfold over the course of roughly two years over two seasons, but about a month roughly had passed in the universe. And yet things happen in there. Things could not have logically have happened in the course of just a month because of the way things panned out, which again plays a little bit into the soap opera timing because soap operas are super stuffed with way too much plot that could conceivably happen in the time it's ostensibly allotted for it. Uh, so it's, fascinating to watch a show that kind of moves slowly, but also is from a step back, insanely fast paced. But then now we're moving to the next step, which is now you're watching a movie that is set before the events of it, but also from a time we stopped watching the TV show to the time we watched the movie about roughly that much time has passed in one piece of this world. And a small thread of it is still continuing. But also that thread is continuing specifically to put something in that then points back to an earlier episode. So we're now getting into a level of continuity walk that is usually on reserve for sci-fi. <laughs> in this horror drama surreal show. And it also shows that it is unreliable because Annie shows up for that briefest of moments in a, a great horror scene a day or so after Laura had already given away the diary. So she's unable to put the note in the diary that Annie wants her to put in the diary. That would have changed the course of things. Yeah. Uh, and so the, so, so now with that scene, uh, this now becomes a time travel story on some level. And it, there, there are different kinds of time travel things. I think we could do an entire season on time travel. We've talked about doing it because different narrative theories of time travel. Uh, this one seems to be slotting into the doomed time travel narrative, which is that time cannot be changed, even if you have the ability to 
bounce around in time. And what's fascinating about that is, and I think we'll, talk, we'll probably talk about this more with the return, but 25 real world years pass before the return happens. So now the real world time has an impact on the world of Twin Peaks. And that kind of back and forth between the uh, meta narrative time and narrative time, we start to see the glimpse of it here. And I think it's one of the, this is one of the many reasons why this movie has gotten better acclaim over the years because it was, again, panned at the time because you have to kind of see this unfold before you can really kind of internalize, oh, okay, I see kind of what's happening here. And to be fair, I think the return needs to happen to kind of give more context for all of what's happening here because out without context, this is just a whole bunch of nonsense. <laughs> uh, but so another thing that's interesting to me is uh so twin Peaks starts off as a soap opera a drama um by season two it's become a ghost story effectively there are spirits possessing people and murdering each other now we're moving into science fiction kind of but again for the lens of a horror film uh but again we have the juxtaposing of tropes because if you just follow Laura's chunk of this movie, this is straight up a horror film. Uh, uh, she has no control over her life. Uh, she's seeing things nobody else could see. Uh, pages of her diary are spontaneously missing. Uh, she's trying to get control of her narrative. And what's interesting about the structure is that if you had a protagonist who was a little more put together and coherent, they probably could have gotten through the other end of this horror movie alive. But because Laura is a drug addict nut she can't she doesn't have enough coherency to, to, to see this through as a horror movie protagonist so she's framed as a horror movie protagonist but is absolutely unsuited for the job they're basically taking the horror movie victim and giving you an illusion that they're in fact the protagonist right and which, she which parallels has well mix- to Cooper not being the protagonist right yeah and that gives her a character that has suffered from psychological and physical abuse, then it becomes a dr- dependent on drugs to elevate her own mood to other forms of depression and mani- mania and several different relationships, all of which she's trying to, as you've mentioned, keep in control while then being able to see the supernatural elements around her. Because right. one of the most horrific parts of it for me as a viewer is when Leland finally confronts her and says, I thought you knew it was me all the time. Yeah. That's disturbing. And so not seeing Bob, but seeing Leland and so forth. And it's filled with horror and just uttered like disgust. And what's for me as a viewer, again, uh, coming just relatively fresh. I said episode one, like, uh, I, I was not really, I thought Bobby was a jerk and I was with the to Leland as the grieving father. Now we're here and my positions have completely switched. Leland is horrible. Uh, possessed by a spirit, sure, but the way it's framed, it's really hard to tell how much of that is Bob and how much of that is Leland. And I think it's intentional. I completely agree it's intentional. Bobby has been on the short end of the stick through a lot of this. I mean, his worst sin, really, through all of this is that he's kind of a drug addict. But 
now that we know that he murdered someone, <laughs> his way he acted at the beginning of the show makes way more sense. Of course he's angry and skittish and trying to avoid being investigated because he doesn't want people to find out he murdered someone. And he murdered someone... Uh, yes, I mean, he, he shot a guy who... Um, uh, he was trying to make a drug deal with, but he also thought he was shooting in self-defense, right? Uh, uh, again, it's it's nebulous, it's lynch, it's, that's intentional, but it's... It's it, just not uh, a guy, though. Do you know who Chet is, right? Uh, Cl- you know, Deputy Cliff? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay. He's a police officer, right, yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, it, 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 I, I understand why Bobby's freaked out. Um, and if we go back to the initial conceit of Twin Peaks... The idea of maybe leaving town just doesn't occur. I mean, partially because he's a minor, uh, but mostly because you just don't leave the town you're in. That That's not a, a narrative option available to you in a soap opera. You don't leave unless you are written off screen. You know, that, that's the only way you can leave. It's something else we skipped in season two, though. You don't leave unless you're James Hurley. Oh, of course. Of course. There's a whole subplot of James getting on the bike, driving out of town, and getting involved with a married older woman who kills her husband, who frames it on James and who, which goes back to season two, becoming uh, a serial, uh, a mystery as opposed to actually a soap opera, but which goes to moving away from twin peaks dilutes the story and it doesn't work well. No. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, and James, I guess could kind of get away with it because I mean, he's framed as the drifter, but Again, I mean, it's like I I, I, I feel like one of the, the the struggles with with Twin Peaks is that it's not a unique vision. It's, it's everyone thinks of it as like, oh, it's Mark and Frost, but it's not a coherent vision. It's kind of the next piece is put in front of them, and they're trying to make it. So there are lots of, like you said, inconsistencies that come through. This as movie introduces more, so you have to kind of cherry pick things. But it, the whole Bobby subplot seems like it was a very kind of plans thing that planned out but then the tropes shifted around bobby and so it it, it it lands awkwardly on some level uh but just on a higher level i mean like i i felt like laura did bobby wrong in a lot of ways which is not what i expected to be when i first started watching the show uh she did a lot of people wrong but that could also be extrapolated out from how wrong she has constantly been almost her entire life right um and as a, a side note, I mentioned this earlier, but I, I should probably kind of uh, close the loop on this. Uh, Donna was recast uh, as a result of this. Um, but again, how Donna as a character changed, you told me it was for backstage reasons because she wanted to have a, a cooler, more sexier part. But now with this movie, we can start to see, okay, here's how she could have gotten to there because she was already exploring that. Then she was told to step back by Laura, but then Laura died, and so she fought against it, but then slowly started to go that way again anyway, to become kind of following in Laura's footsteps, so there's a neat kind of Anakin Skywalker inevitability if we watch this, it's like, no, no, you have to not do this, but we know she's going to go that way. The the recasting of Moira Kelly bothers me. It bothered me then, it bothers me even now watching it, is that it's so jarring that the friendship and could be something else moments that we almost had between Laura and Donna don't hit with the same strength they would have yeah. if if the actress had come back that we'd seen for like those past couple of years and it would have kept that same sort of feeling and emotion between the two. 
compared to bringing in a new care a new actress who does good work, but it doesn't feel right. Right. That that's always the danger with with recasting um, is that sometimes it works, uh, sometimes it works brilliantly. I mean. The most obvious example is Doctor Who. Uh, they found a narrative way to make the recasting work to their extreme benefit. Uh, but you do run the risk of people not having the same emotional connection. Uh, to go back to an episode, or a show we watched but didn't cover, um, there's a narrative reason why Gen Z Dex becomes a new actor. But I don't think anyone took the new Dex in the same way that they did Gen Zia. Uh, so it's like, even though, yes, it's the same symbiote and therefore it's the same character, but there's also a different take on it. It never quite landed. I think, um, even though they just mentioned stuff of like, uh, uh how it affected her and Worf's relationship. Um, so yeah, it, it, it's, when you have but a part key of that is, character, we, I mean, it's not, it's part of that, you have a character like this and recasting it, it can always be a challenge. And it takes time to get used to new character. Even when they change the doctor, which is a, a brilliant conceit, people have like, this is my doctor or I didn't really like that doctor as much, but over the seasons or series, if it's a BK uh, BBC show, you get to see and learn more of that character and you sort of grow to like them, but they're never quite the same as your first doctor. Most of the time, for instance, someone asked me about doctor who I'll always say my doctor is Sylvester McCoy, the seventh or David Tennant later on. While I don't have a great affection for Matt Smith, things like that. Uh, and Donna, frankly, Donna Noble? doesn't get. You know, I scenes. think that no. <laughs> Donna Noble is an amazing companion, and I'll hear no slander about this. Uh, uh, but no, um, uh, in this movie, uh, like I didn't even realize she was supposed to be playing Donna until we were in these scenes. Mm. And it's like, oh, okay, you're supposed to be Donna. I mean, I, I heard the name, but it just didn't quite register. Yeah, it didn't even click with me. It's like, oh, it's the same character. And then when I saw the scenes, like, okay, the same character. And yeah, by that point in time, I didn't have enough emotional connection to, to map my feelings of the character from this actor to that actor. So, yeah. Teresa Banks. The, the character of Teresa Banks was also supposed to have been a teenager and a contemporary of Laura and Renette. Mm. And no, no, that character is living in a motel by herself. Looks, all of them look older than 17, like because they're right. actresses that are old in the age, but she looks a decade or so over. Yeah. And you could say it was from, from hard living, but hard living doesn't set in that quick. No, no, no. I mean, it, only reason why she's a teenager is because a couple times in, in dialogue, I, I, like, I think like. At the very beginning, when uh, Desmond's talking about the case, he mentions her age. That's the only reason why you're supposed to think she's a teenager. But nothing about not only the actor or the casting, but also just the script. She she should be in her early 20s. Everything about the script says she should be in her early 20s at, at best. Maybe even mid to late 20s. And this is so another one of those breaking moments that pulls the world in too much to have... Teresa Banks, Laura, and Renette all be like friends. They could have just all been advertising in Flesh War without having been so close together. That brings your world from being this big, massive thing to a very small, finite piece of work, which bothers me personally as I like a more expansive universe. Right. Um, now, I will say, uh, the nature of how we watch and record these things, I had a concern queued up in my head, 
And then I watched some more and that concern has been alleviated. I don't want to go into too much detail about it, but I will say when Laura and James are fighting, the whole time I was watching that scene, I felt like it was really disjointed. Uh, and one was like, was there like stuff cut out of this? Like when Lynch does disjointed, there's a certain kind of tone to it. Either it's the, they're talking around something very obviously and you don't know what the thing you're talking around is, or it's so completely disjointed that it leaves reality. And, and you can kind of recognize, especially after watching a couple of seasons, you have to recognize the pattern and think, okay, it's one of these two things. It was neither of those. It felt like there were just lines missing from the, 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 the scene. Uh, the return does address this. So I want to point it out by saying, we're going to come back to this. And I found out extremely recently that it comes back to this in a, in a, a genuinely clever way, I think. But looking at this just in isolation, which is what kind of what we're doing now, it feels like the wheels of the movie are falling off around that point. Like, it feels like, like you said, there's a book that was written that they're trying to allude to, that they're only kind of half paying attention to, and... Uh, uh, there's almost like a, a, a mandate for we have to have a certain amount of weirdness in this movie, so let's just kind of inject it at random points. Um, like Jacques, and when they're when they're partying, Jacques and the women, Jacques just starts babbling, and like nothing about Jacques as a character has ever portrayed him as being someone who who sees has visions or oracular ability or anything. I am the great wind. Yes, it's like it's like it's. And I mean, in any of the movie, you'd be like, okay, he's just high. But Twin Peaks has taught us that when these kinds of things happen, there's a reason. And there's just no reason. Before you go into Jacques and and that big, like, club scene where Donna gets roofied and Laura probably knows, another breaking point, like, breaks consistency, is that Bobby doesn't know Jacques in the series. He knows Leo. Yeah, right. And he's calling Jacques to get what he needs because Leo's not helping him. Like that's another break that did... I won't keep harping on these. I only, only harped them a little bit. It's not like I, I did in the anime series, but that constant inconsistency brings more and more reasons why this movie is not something I've gone back to. Yeah. Since I enjoy this television series more than I do the movie aspect of it. It's almost like this is a reimagined version of the series which is great. And if it had been sold like that, that would have had a different vibe for when people went into it. Right. Uh, based on this, my gut is that uh, Frost was the person who kept continuity on the show. Uh, everything I, I, I've heard and read and now watched, when Frost is not involved, continuity doesn't really matter, which to be fair, that, 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 that sounds like Lynch continuity doesn't really matter. You know, coherence doesn't really matter. Um, so that's not surprising, but I, I agree with you. It's disappointing because like, if this is being sold as here's the missing story that you were being told about, and then this story doesn't jive with the facts. I mean, again, even if it's both soap opera, it's presented as a mystery and mystery fans do think about this stuff. Mystery fans track details, just like detectives. That's part of the fun for them. And so when their facts are not lining up with the quote unquote true story, they're going to get mad. Uh, is that so that's one of the issues I, I believe with uh, Agatha Christie and Hercule Poirot is a is that 
they hide facts so that the reader doesn't know them. So it's impossible for you to solve the mystery. Right. Um, in the mystery trait, it's called playing fair, uh, which is the idea that the reader could ostensibly figure the same things out if they were smart as a detective. Um, I could go on a whole rant about this because uh, I, I both agree and disagree with it. But ultimately, by 93, that's an established thing. And if you're going to do a mystery, you better play fair. And Twin Peaks straight up fucking doesn't. So, folks, after we leave the Twin Peaks zone, we're going to go back to superheroes. If you want us to shift our potential mystery series up, uh, let us know. Yeah, I'll uh, One final thing, just from a pure production standpoint, that I actually liked uh, is, regardless of how uncomfortable the club scenes are with, with Jacques and, and the women, um, the fact that the music is really loud and that they have to subtitle the dialogue is actually really cool. Uh, for two reasons. On a, on a higher level, it really sells the fact that you're in a very loud club and you can't quite hear what people are saying. So it, there's, a, there's that bizarre grounding that sometimes happens in Lynchian products where like it, it, it takes this very aesthetic experience and brings a, a very real world component to connect to and go, okay, I've had that experience and so I'm therefore connecting to this more bizarre experience. Uh, but also as a person hearing loss, that is exactly how all clubs sound to me. Is, is there's music and it's like, please, I wish I had subtitles in real life. Jesus, this is amazing. That club scene. All right. We, we have to talk about it before we go on to the, the, the ending of the, the show, but the movie, that is a beautiful piece of cinematography. Yeah. yeah. It sets an unbelievable tone. The music is perfect. Uh, I agree with you on the subtitles, but the story it's conveying without using real words, you can, you can even get what's going on without, without watching, without reading the subtitles. Yeah, no, there's great, there's great body language. Yeah, and that that's just a a one of the things that Lynch excels at. And I want to take a moment to acknowledge how masterful that is, regardless of any other comments about the movie. Right, and in a way, I think that scene is peak this movie in the sense of. Wow, that's a really pretty scene. It's a shame that the actual subject matter is so fucking uncomfortable and also inconsistent. <laughs> yes. Um, is there anything else that you want to cover on on that part before we, we move on? To the epilogue. To why angels are dicks. Right. So uh, the epilogue is actually very simple. Uh, Laura's dead body is discovered by Twin Peaks. So we've then got oh, to. Oh, the no, sorry. I didn't mean there. I meant we go to the train car and the... Oh, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Yes. Um, uh, uh, okay. Uh, yes, we're, st- we're in the train car. Um, geez, I'm not sure where to start with this. Cabin? Uh, so, right. That, so they Cabin have sex. Cabin or train car? Um, Which, let me point out. So I, I'm watching these while my, my daughter's in school because she's nine. And yeah, I don't she's want not her anywhere near, anywhere near this trash. Um, <laughs> and so I'm watching it during my lunch break between like meetings. And Jill walks in and she looks at the, the bar scene with Jacques and the girls and goes, what the fuck are you watching? <laughs> and there's some other bad comments. And then she just kind of leaves disgusted by the entire thing. There you go. That is the point of reference as a person wandering by watching someone watch Firewalk with me. 
I'm glad you said that because there was certainly a part of me at the end of this movie going, without context, this just becomes really crappy porn. Yeah. Because the premise is like a bad porn movie premise. Um, uh, but anyway, so they go back to the cabin. And Leland takes Laura and Renette to an abandoned train car. Uh, and, and, and the implication is that Bob is now in full control. Can we talk about that scene, though, when he takes him to the train car? Yeah, sure. Go ahead. I, I've, I've given Lynch nothing but compliments on the cinematography and everything else. But it looks like Leland is a demented Santa Claus and they are reindeer and he's riding them to get to the train car with that flashlight in their face and everything else. That is the the worst, worst imagery. Well, not, not, all right, let me rephrase that. That is the worst bit of camera work I've seen in the entire tenure of Twin Peaks. I, I, I don't even know how to phrase this. The whole scene felt to me like they lost the proofs for the first scene and had to put together a scene quickly before they were showing it in two weeks. It, because I genuinely didn't know what happened here until I read the summary on Wikipedia. It's yeah. just a bunch of stuff happens. Uh, it's also, I'm baffled how a middle-aged man carries two unconscious women into a train car. I mean, I don't, the train did not appear to be anywhere close to the cabin. So there's just logistics. I mean, and again, a Lynch film, I probably shouldn't be thinking about logistics in a Lynch film. But it, again, when you, when you talk about mysteries, and this is the mystery we've been trying to learn about for two years now, this is the point where you get the details right, you know? <laughs> and Lynch just has no interest in that shit. I had to bring that up because it is frustrating because it's badly shot in addition to just being horrible disgusting material it is not even presented in a way that keeps you grounded in that moment and how horrible it is on so many levels and it's not lynch even trying to be funny how he is to alleviate some of the horror it's just bad right right yeah if, if it had been like some kind of comedy of him like slipping and trying to pick them up and they keep falling down or something that would have been disturbing at a different level, but it would have much more tied into things. And that's the other point is that that the reason why I kind of broke it up into three chunks is because that first chunk feels as, as weird as it is, as much as it breaks things, it still feels like twin peaks. None of this feels like twin peaks. This feels like a different movie that Lynch just had the same actors and the same characters in, but it doesn't tonally. It feels nothing like twin peaks. Like, there's some uh, interesting cinematography, but we don't have the same ambiguity. It, it's it's just confusing. Mm-hmm. And not in a compelling way, just in a what the fuck is happening way. Um, and what's even more frustrating for me is that, especially at this scene, because this is the scene that we have, this, this moment has been analyzed for two seasons of television. And so this is the point where you should be like, okay, here's where all those pieces fit together. And maybe you learn a little bit more, or maybe there's a new layer of uncertainty introduced. Either of those is fine. It's just nonsense. The only thing I got out of this is that Bob and Mike are both spirits and Mike hates Bob and Bob hates Mike, which I kind of knew already. But so inside the train car, 
when they're there and all these grisly things are about to happen, they break some of the can continue to break continue the show by having it has been a thing of good and evil and maybe spirits maybe aliens depending on right. your take on season two but they break all of that by the introduction of angels honest to i'm coming from heaven angel to save you ronette and i will leave you laura to die here right by removing right. ronette's bonds and Renat pops out of the train I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll quickly cover the epilogue because it's not quite clear there's an angel there, but it's explicitly clear when we get to the next section, which is that Laura's body's found. It, then go to the Red Room. Cooper comforts her in the Red Room, and she sees an angel floating above and cries tears of joy. So we explicitly told, no, this is absolutely an angel, and this angel left Laura to die. Well, but it's not even that. Even when she's looking at the picture earlier in the movie that has an angel in it, and the angel vanishes from the picture. Uh, like, fair. it is reinforced angel. Angel, angel. And the entire show up to now has not dealt in the concept of heaven and hell. It's been good and evil. That good and evil may be supernatural. It may be alien. It may be human for a while, human projecting other things, but never heaven, hell, which I think diminishes the show and the original message. If it had a message, it was trying to tell for seasons one and two. Right. I almost feel like uh, Le- Leland should have, you know, they go to the cabin, Leland shows up, beats Chuck unconscious, Leo flees, end the movie there. <laughs> right? Because we know what happens next. We don't need to be told what happens next. We don't need to see it. Uh, especially if you're going to do it this badly, frankly. But um, even that breaks continuity because when we have Jacques... And he's being investigated by Cooper after being shot in a hospital, which is illegal, I don't think. Uh, he says, Leo came and beat me up. Right. And Leo should have like blood on his shirt and everywhere else because it's a whole thing about, Shelly, where's my shirt? Leo needs new shoes. So oh, yeah. that breaks also. So it's constantly uh. like, we don't care what we told you. This is our story now. Deal with it or else. Right. And... Um, then we get into the Red Room twice here. Uh, and it's, I, I understand the Red Room is iconic. I understand what the Red Room's role is in the show. This is too much Red Room. Uh, this, this feels like the only reason we're doing this is because that's what you do with Twin Peaks now. Is you have scenes in the Red Room. And we end season two on this really long Red Room scene. So if we don't have Red Room scene, people are going to be mad. So we have to have Red Room scene. Red room, red room, red room. And it, I mean, it, it, it's neat to see the, uh, the man, with, uh, Mike and the man in the place talking to somebody else besides Cooper or Laura. That part I actually didn't have a problem with because I felt like that added something. But then this long thing of just Cooper telling Laura it's okay, she's dead. Not only is there a weird time thing happening there, obviously, uh, but also it, it, breaks the previous interactions that Cooper and Laura had entirely. Um, it adds nothing to the continuity. It, it, doesn't, it, it, it felt very hard like we have to redeem Laura as a character. And it's like, no, you really don't. You don't have to make it uh, a horrible white girl died. Okay, you don't need to make that palatable. <sighs> <laughs> oh, God. So that is... 
I feel like I need to give people some some pointers though. When and a few important notes before you watch the return, as we're not going to go through all the return. And right. the episodes I've chosen don't include the first one or two, which if you want, feel free to watch them, but we'll talk about those in a minute. But the ring that Desmond reached for and that Laura puts on, important. The fact yep. that the residents of the trailer park or the Tremonts, an important name to remember, there are little snit- snippets in this movie that are going to be important in the return. And I use important in in quotation marks because important means they may be name dropped. I, I feel like the ring is the only thing that's completely distinct to this movie that does seem to have a, a noteworthy presence in the return from my limited watching of it. Uh, but man, again, it's like, if you just read this on Wikipedia and just go, Oh, there's an important ring. Okay. Got it. That's probably all you need to know. <laughs> Do you um, have any other thoughts on this? Cause, uh, as much as I just ripped it apart, I mean, again, I do like from a from a structural standpoint, Cooper being there to comfort Laura because it does set up this, what was going to become, we, we're already starting to see it, but we're going to see more of it soon, the, the time Ouroboros of Cooper and uh, Laura's life. Uh, the fact that they're connected to each other and... Um, Cooper's there at the end of her life. She's there at, at points of his life. They don't quite hit each other. Um, it is a very rough sketch of, like, say, uh, River Song and the Doctor and, or, or the Time Traveler's wife. Uh, the um, characters who are connected in time, but they're never quite sync up in time. Uh, so, I mean, if it had been done very differently, I'd be much happier about it. But like, I still like the, the conceit of this is not entirely a prequel. Uh, it is disjointed in time. It only makes sense if we as the audience are parsing it in the correct release order. And even then, we're not quite parsing it correctly. Um, but I'm going to be honest, the whole movie feels like a cash-in. <laughs> really does. It feels like, holy shit, I need some more Twin Peaks money to offset my cocaine habit because clearly I'm obsessed with cocaine. So I actually shared with Eddie in the in our private host Discord the actual full blown Twin Peaks cash grab, yes. which was uh, Twin Peaks and Georgia coffee in a can, mm-hmm. and that is literally all it was. He pulls a few of the cast members together, and they made I want to say four different commercials about Cooper helping this Japanese man locate his missing girlfriend, missing girlfriend or wife, and there's four of them. And they paid people a bunch of money and they made the commercials about the Georgia coffee in a can. And what's fascinating about those, I actually, I may put it in the show notes uh, just because it's kind of worth watching in a sense that it is fascinating to watch people who worked on Twin Peaks deliver the perfect satire of the thing that they worked on. Because each 30 second commercial is effectively, hey, Agent Cooper, look at this weird thing. Agent Cooper says, I got to have some coffee first, pulls out a can of coffee talks about the coffee and then comes up with a completely nonsensical thing that ties to the next plot point in the next commercial. And it's like, that really is what watching twin peaks is like. Does on the level in a very condensed three second view. Um, and with all the nuance stripped out, it just becomes ludicrous nonsense, which obviously is what's happening here. Um, 
but watching that in, not immediately but relatively soon after watching this movie it's like man i wish the movie was more like these commercials <laughs> from if i remember right twin peaks was became incredibly popular in japan and i want to say a lot of that hit right after this movie released and okay. one of the podcasts i was listening to way back in the day talked about how they would dress up as laura palmar and go to places kind of kind of how we do nice. for like superheroes and whatnot and whoever's that's amazing. I love it. Good on you, Japan. So, yeah. All right. So kind of a foregone conclusion, given how many times you've referenced it. But what are we watching next week, Chris? Um, we're going to watch Arrow. Twin Peaks. <laughs> Twin Peaks. The Reckoning of Arrow. And it's going to be where Ollie Queen makes his way to Twin Peaks. No, we're not going to we're not going to write this show before we do it. Honestly, keep going because I've watched that. To be fair, you have failed Twin Peaks, <laughs> which is right in so many ways. Um, <laughs> but instead, since Eddie won't let me add in other random shows, we're just going to watch Twin Peaks: The Returned. We're going to watch uh, Part Eight: Got a Light, Part Seventeen: The Past Dictates the Future, and Part Eighteen: What Is Your Name? If folks really want to, I would suggest that you watch episodes one and two. I will give a brief, brief synopsis of what's needed if you don't want to. And that's why I'm not making them mandatory because they're not really that important, honestly. Um, I will say, because uh, I'm in the middle of watching these myself right now, um, this is 2017 television. So we're now into a much more heavily serialized TV. Uh, so definitely kind of be aware that you're going to be a lot more assuming you've seen the previous episodes than even Twin Peaks itself was. So Eddie, we haven't done one of these in a while. If you had to remake fire walk with me into a good movie, see what I did there folks? Uh, uh, how would you do it? One, man, two, three, tough. go. Um, so, I would probably risk not having Cooper in it at all. I would probably make it just purely a Laura Palmer movie. Um, and I recognize that in 92, that's an extremely risky proposition, but I'm also assuming I'm David Lynch in this scenario. So, you know, fuck what people think. Uh, um, and, and just make it much more of a, here's the final week of Laura Palmer. Um, I think... I would have hired someone to do the research to make sure the details are right before I wrote that script. Uh, and then that's what I think there. Ingle was supposed to have done. Clearly did not do a good job. Um, and I mean, I, I, again, I still, I still think there's a, a path for this where uh, you get all the facts, right. But then you add, like the ring was a new layer. Um, uh, how Bob and Mike relate to each other and the nuances of that. They're, 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 it could have been something besides angels, but something could have been added there. You could retell that stuff while still adding new layers of mystery. I don't think that's the inherent problem. Uh, but I think adding the, I, f I feel like the first part of the movie is just, we name drop this in episode one, so we have to cover it. And I don't think you really need to, frankly. Um, because also I don't think the letters under the fingernails are ever explained other than just, we're doing this to try to lure the FBI in because it's a weird, thing <laughs> uh, technically they could spell robert really hey 
Bob is a short version of Robert. Well, I mean that that that's subjectively true, but also dumb. Oh yeah, uh, yeah I, I did say it wasn't. Okay, <laughs> I All didn't right. defend well, it. You asked how could you explain it? Those are uh, different different questions. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um. Uh, the other option is maybe have it kind of a more even split where half the film is the Cooper investigation, half the film is Laura Palmer. Um, I mean, that's another way of possibly doing it. But uh, this is... In some ways, I, I, I now kind of want to see what the rest of that footage is because I feel like a different movie may have been edited out of this into a little more coherent. Um, I don't know if it's some of the incoherency is just the stuff that was dropped out. Uh, maybe if you rejuggle the footage, maybe you can get a better cut. I don't, th- I don't think this movie needs a three-and-a-half-hour cut, frankly. Uh, but... <laughs> Um. Yeah. No. I. I. I think it would be salvageable with just another script, you're right, and a slightly different structuring of things. But I'm not David Lynch. I'm not the genius that is David Lynch. How about you? Okay. I would definitely not cut Coop because people are coming because they know who Coop is, and if I only had Coop for a week, I would have used him differently. I would have had him be part of the actual investigation for Teresa Banks somehow. Or I would have made the entire movie about Philip Jeffries and just had David Bowie be cool for an hour and a half and offhandedly mentioned Laura somewhere in there. Kind of how the season uses Laura as a hook to get people in. We would trick them and use them again to get them to come watch David Bowie in concert. I will say um, about the David Bowie thing. Uh, so to start off with, I just texted Chris in the middle of it and said, what the fuck, David Bowie? And he immediately knew what I was talking about. <laughs> Uh, but then I realized, okay, I, I've got to know how. I, I don't remember to do research, but I've got to know. And it turns out, apparently, this was a gag because his Lynch's assistant would keep, every time they're talking about the movie, would keep, they'd mention a character, and she'd always say, as played by David Bowie. Um, <laughs> kind of making fun of how all the actors were acting in Twin Peaks. And then finally, David Lynch said, like, well, fine, I'll just get David Bowie. And turns out he could. Uh, so... I mean, like, I'm with you in the sense of, like, if you're going to get David Bowie, for love of God, using more than one scene. Yeah. <laughs> Have him play Cooper. Just don't explain it. Just tell me he's Cooper now. <laughs> Who cares? It's Twin Peaks. You could do that, right? That's it. He gets possessed by uh, Philip Jeffries for a good chunk of the movie. Coop at the start, Coop at the end, Jeffries in the middle. Yes. D- love it. Do it. Make it happen. Uh, and for folks who don't know, David Bowie was also in a Western playing the bad guy. I did not know that. I, I, I quote that movie in Haunted West. Wow. Now, so now that's a rabbit David hole Bowie's, for people to go down. Yeah, I want to find David Bowie's acting career now. Uh, but if if people are looking for you, Eddie, where can they find you online so we can, so I can stop complaining about Fire Walk With Me? Um, you can find me on uh, Twitter as Pugsteady. That's P-U-G-S-T-A-D-Y. It's also my website, Pugsteady.com. Or you can find me on the Darker Hue Discord sending Chris random links to shit I found on ar- archive.org. Uh, if you're looking for me, you can follow me on Twitter at Darker underscore Hue. You can also go to my website, Darker Hue Studios, and buy some stuff. Or you can find me in the Discord sending Eddie cool Transformers say anything pictures that I randomly find <laughs> online. Which is great. I love it. Uh, so, so with that, we will see you all next week with the end of Twin Peaks with Twin Peaks The Return. I'll be seeing you.